Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had somebody tell you that they were going to come pick you up, but they didn't. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> I've been there and done that, Josh. Maybe they, they told you, hey, you know, right after school, I'm going to be there to get you, but then they didn't. Maybe you had a friend who said, yeah, I'll pick you up from the airport. But they didn't show up, or maybe they were a little bit late because they got stuck in the Starbucks. Uh, maybe you were asking a friend, hey, you know what, my, my wife took the car, I need you to take me home from work, and they're like, sure, but then they left and left you there. Uh, or it could be like for an event, like you were supposed to go to the rodeo together, and like completely didn't show up. And I, I don't know, but um, I've been left some places, and thought, you know, somebody forgot me or thought that something came up and they just didn't think or had a way, maybe even let me know about it. Um, remember, I was like in the seventh grade and, and from the time I was like, I, I, I'm being honest with you, the time I was like, I think, the time I was like in the second grade all the way through, man, I played football. And I remember I played on this little, this team called the Orange Crush. And we like, had the great knee highs and the orange crush and the strawberry fan. Like, we had names. That's just what we named each other. But I didn't want to be on a team that sounded so girly, so I wanted the orange crush. That was my, my team. And so my cousin, who happened to be a senior in high school at the time, he was, like, completely, like, all scholarshiped out. He was going to play for Virginia Tech and all these, all these schools just because he was a linebacker. He was the be-all and be-all. He was six foot seven. He was a stud of a man. Now, I was young enough at that time that I thought he played professional football. I mean, I, I really did. I thought this guy had made the pros. I mean, he was in the papers all the time. When I would go to the games, his name was always being called out. He was my hero. And so he was one of my coaches on this little team. And so he told me uh, one time, he said, uh, Steve, this wasn't typical. My mom got caught in a, in a situation, and she couldn't get me to my practice. And this was also a practice and a game a little bit later. And he said, Stephen, he says, I'll get you after school. I'll come by after school, and I'll pick you up. Well, I'm so young at that time, I took him literally. So right after school, I got my uniform on, and I was standing outside my house ready to go. One hour passed, and he wasn't there. Two hours passed, and he wasn't there, and I am freaking out. My little heart is just, I'm, I'm crying, I'm, I'm just anxious, I'm worried, I'm pacing, I run every play that I can think of in my brain, I'm trying to distract myself, and I'm just thinking, he's completely forgot about me, and, and I thought... There's my hero, and he's let me down. But he eventually, I see his truck pull in the driveway, and my heart's just bounding with joy. And I jump in, and the first thing's out of his mouth. He says, why you got that look on your face? I'm like, because I thought you forgot me. And he says, Stephen, I told you I'd be by after school. Bro, it is after school, right? But he meant I'd be by sometime after school to get you in enough time to get you to practice in the game. But he said, man, didn't I tell you that I was coming to get you? 
Yeah, you told me. And so in my mind's eye, what happened was is something he said I took differently than what he meant. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. And so really what began to happen was I learned this incredible lesson that sometimes when people tell you something, you don't need to worry about the particulars. You just need to be prepared. And so it would have been a different story if he'd have showed up and he had to wait on me, right? I'd have probably got left. But it was better that I was prepared so when he showed up, we were ready to go. I remember this is another time I was in the military, Josh, just like you, man. And, and uh, man, I was at Fort Lee, Virginia, and it was, uh, I was doing some training there. I was in a school there, and it was around Christmas time. And I remember that Rachel, she lived not too far from there, and we had met, and we were forming our relationship. And, and uh, she said, hey, you know, over the Christmas break, uh, man, I can come get you for a few days. And and uh, man, Bob, I came stayed at your house, if you remember that correctly. And so, um, man, it was really cool. She said, hey, on this date, sometime that morning, you know, I'll, I'll be there to get you. Well, you know, we get up at 4.30 in the morning. And so by 5.30, I'd had breakfast and I was ready to go. I didn't put it together that Rachel was going to get up. She wasn't going to get up at 5.30 and come get me. I, I just didn't think that way. I just thought she said the morning, I meant the same thing. Morning meant 5.30. To her, it meant when she got up. And man, listen, man, I'm going to tell y'all, man, y'all know my wife is incredibly beautiful. Like, y'all know that. And she, man, she, she, at that point, she still has it right now. It's so gorgeous. But she had in that 80s hair, you know, that was, remember that, baby? Like, it was really long, but you had to, like, spend two hours fixing it. You know what I mean? And so I just forgot that that's how long it took. And so I should have added that up. It would have been at least 8.30 just fixing her hair. Then she had to do her makeup because, you know, she's coming to see me. She want to look good. You know? I'm like, okay, cool. And so, but, you know, it was a little bit later on in the morning. And everybody else in my company had left. And I was there with my, my sergeant over my platoon. He's like, bro, is, is the joke in the military was is she's found somebody else. And he's like, yeah, see, told you, man. I was like, no, that ain't her. I know it. And he kept razzing me. And so then I just kept thinking about, man, what it would be like to be in her presence. And I just longed for her. And I just began putting my thoughts there. And it helped me a little bit. And then I saw that little white car coming down the road. And man, my heart exploded. And and I got in the car. And we began to talk about it. And she's like, you know, I I was like, hey, you know, man, I didn't know when you were going to come. She's like, but I told you I was coming. Like, yeah, you did. Again, another instance in my life where I learned this lesson. Sometimes you don't need to focus on the particulars. You just need to be prepared. So that when she showed up, I was ready to go. You know, this got me thinking. I think this is what Daniel's doing in Daniel chapter 7. I think he said, Jesus is coming back. And I think all of us are waiting around saying, you know what, Jesus, have you forgotten? <laughs> like, you know, you said you're going to come by like after school, but, but it's way after school. Like you said in your word, you're going to come after this happened, but you ain't showed up. So like, did you forget? And I think Jesus may be teaching us through the book of Daniel. What, what I learned early on is that, listen, God gives us prophecy, not for us to figure out and pinpoint the particulars. He just wants us to be prepared so that when he comes, you're ready. Because when he comes, you don't have time to get ready. Because when he comes, 
you already got to be ready. And so I just want to throw that out there. Maybe it'll come up on the screen. The point of prophecy, the point of prophecy is not to pinpoint a date. So if you study prophecy and you get into all that and you get into people who start trying to pinpoint dates for you, just telling you, that ain't the point of prophecy. The point of prophecy is not for us to pinpoint a date. The point of prophecy is just to be prepared as disciples. Jesus didn't tell us all this stuff so that you guys could figure out when. He told us all this stuff so that we could be prepared that when he comes back, we're ready. And so in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the coming of the king and his kingdom. We've been here for five weeks now. And many have tried to figure out when. Many have tried to to pinpoint that date. There are many books out there. There's many prophecy conferences you go to. And people are waxing eloquent and putting all this stuff together. And hey, that's great. If you want to waste your time doing that, you're trying to figure out something Jesus himself said he didn't know. So I just think it's pointless. But there's even denominations that met yesterday. The Seventh-day Adventists. Because they tried to figure out, they had a leader who tried to pinpoint the day of Christ, and they missed it ridiculously, and they're still following that one meeting. I don't get it. But people do this all the time, and I'm trying to tell you, it's missing the point. The point is, is that we need to be prepared. And so Daniel chapter 7, today in a review fashion, because we've covered a lot of ground, and I just want to make sure that we have it, because listen, I've said this to you over and over again. Once we get into Daniel chapter 8, it's going to be like, okay. But the moment we jump into Daniel chapter 9, if we don't get Daniel chapter 7, we don't stand a clue to understand Daniel chapter 9. So I have done my best to lay the framework so that you can hear it over and over. New concepts, new terminology, so that you're ready to know what Daniel chapter 9 is all about. So we're going to learn this morning some principles principles about when God comes back. I'm not going to give you any dates. I'm not going to even lead you that way because I don't think that's what the scripture itself would do. So it's our fashion here that we stand when we read the word of God. And I know you're maybe tired of standing this morning, but but you don't have to stand. I just want to give you the opportunity. I just want to ask you if you want to rise your feet, I'm going to read from Daniel chapter seven, beginning in verse 15. And we're going to read through Daniel chapter seven, verse 28. So Daniel said, as for me, and be on the screen here behind me too, Daniel chapter 7, verse 15 says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. He said, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom. How long, church? forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired, watch this, I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than his associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Amen. Then he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. 
As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be giving into his hand for what? Time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people, the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. But he says, at this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. You may be seated and may God bless his word. Here's the first thing. Now listen, this isn't a lot of new stuff. This is just really summary stuff here. Here's the first thing. The kingdom of Christ will come after the formed partnership. The kingdom of Christ is going to come after the formed partnership. After the course of man's history, after the kingdoms of these nations have formed a partnership in a 10 federation alliance, you've read about these 10 horns. So if you look there in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3, I'm just by way of review, in the first year of King Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and he had in his mind as he lay on his bed, then he wrote the dream down, right? In Daniel, in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So there's that vision and that vision, these four beasts... And then it goes on to tell us about the Ancient of Days sitting on his throne. Then it tells us one about Christ the Lord being given the kingdom as he comes in his glory to set up this kingdom. But Daniel says that there arose something going on in the great sea. Verse 2 says that the winds of the heavens, they they strove upon the great sea. So, So what is this great sea? You've got to understand contextually and culturally, Daniel only had four choices. He lived on the Mediterranean Sea, and around him he would have known the Galilean Sea, the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is often called the Great Sea throughout Scripture. Well, that makes sense that that's what it is, because the Galilean Sea is a small lake. The Dead Sea is more of a little bit of a larger lake, but the Red Sea is a very narrow strip of water. So in Daniel's mind, we would know maybe he was thinking that this was the Mediterranean Sea. It was the biggest one because he calls it the great sea from Daniel's perspective. And upon that sea, he sees turbulence, violence, turmoil being brought up, brought on by the four winds of heaven. The number four is significant. In the scripture, it's usually associated with the earth. You know this. There are four seasons. There's four directions, north, south, east, and west. The sea represents humanity. The earth is convulsing, raging in turmoil and distress. And Daniel sees the upheaval of the day of man. Humanity is shaken to its core because of the impact of its sinfulness. The winds are the result of the elements of human sin that is wreaking havoc upon humanity. So when God looks, this is how he sees the nations. They are in chaos. Today, you and I can see that too. We, we today have instant access to what's happening around the world like no other generation. So we could see, looking from our perspective, the very same thing. We could see that the humanity is on the brink of turmoil because of its sinfulness. But see, Daniel saw it 
before we seed. Verse 3, it says, and out of that became four beasts. The word there is they were great beasts. They were very, very great. They were huge. They were massive. They weren't animals. They were like animals. They're monsters. They're unique, and they're diverse. And it's out of this turmoil, out of this boiling, raging, troubled sea of humanity that we see the rise of these four superpowers, four empires that are bloody and fearful. So what do they have to do with the coming of the kingdom? So if you'll remember way back in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel saw a statue with the same four empires. That statue was this head of gold, and then it moved down with these metals describing them. We talked about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. This vision is another, another thing from a different perspective. It's the same nations just seen differently. Because from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he saw them as precious metals that everyone longed for. They were gold-headed and this massive monumental image. But you remember at that time when, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, he was a pagan. He had yet to come to faith in the Messiah. And so that's how he saw it. These world powers were, were magnificent. They were wonderful. They were something that people would want. But now we get to see these four kingdoms from God's perspective and it's very nasty. It is completely the opposite. God doesn't look at this as a thing of beauty and wonder or shining brilliance or useful metals. He sees ugly, uncontrolled, wild beasts that wreak havoc upon the earth. You see, man sees the kingdoms of this earth as something marvelous. I don't know that you'll go into any kingdom where people don't think that that kingdom, somebody thinks it's kind of cool. But from God's perspective, he sees things very differently. So in verse 4, he talks about this lion with the wings of an eagle. In verse 5, he talks about this bear. In verse 6, he talks about this leopard. And then in verse 7, there's this, this crazy, strong beast with these large iron teeth. So we learned, if you will remember, that, that Babylon is that first thing that we find there. He is the lion with the wings of eagle. This is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 5, when we hear about the second beast, the bear, and it was leaned up upon one side, and, and it had these three ribs in his mouth, we talked about that this is the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians were just a little bit stronger, which created the imbalance for the bear. And then we learned about the leopard being that of Alexander the Great, and how swiftly and how powerfully he conquered the known world. And then it says, though, that that, that leopard had four wings of a bird and had four heads. And we know from the study of history, and we said this, that, that then Alexander divided that up and Cassander took over Greece and Macedonia. Lysacomus, he, he took over Thrace and Asia Minor. Seleucus, he took over Syria and Ptolemy, he took over Egypt. But then we get to this monster with these large iron teeth and we know that this describes the Roman Empire. But did you notice that eventually this beast has 10 horns? And so what you need to understand is, is this is a composite of the leopard, the bear, and the lion because those kingdoms that Rome overcame, some of the elements of those were blended into the Roman Empire. It's a summation of the power of all of them coming together. And we know that the Roman Empire lasted longer than the others. It lasted over 1,500 years. It was fearful and strong in size and strength. So... The whole point of this is to tell you that when we see 
the revival of looks like there's a forming of the, the, the empires that, that exist out there, these 10 empires that, that are there. When we start to begin to see that and there's partnerships being formed, we ought to be aware that the kingdom of Christ could come. This formed partnership. And guys, it's happened in many school forms already, right? You think about the forming of the European Union. It, 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 it can happen just like at any time. The economic union, the, the now, the, the Bitcoin, as it came on, and, and this now this, this, this idea to turn one world currency but between getting China to form relationships with people they would have never thought about before. When we begin to see this, you can see how quickly, listen, if you weren't ready, you probably ought to be getting ready because the kingdom will come after a formed partnership. But... There will be a revival of the Roman Empire. That is the point. There will be a revival of this overwhelming, massive, just empire that just takes over the known world. The kingdom is coming soon. And Rome is coming again in a bigger, stronger, more united way. I'm just telling you. Here's the second thing. The kingdom of Christ will come after the famous premier. The kingdom of Christ will come after the famous premier. Look there in verse 8. He says there, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one came up from among them. Three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed the eyes of a man and the mouth uttering great boasts. No wonder if you would follow me as I take you to Revelation for, for maybe some deeper insight. We've been doing both of these simultaneously. But in Revelation chapter 17, verses 11 through 13, the Bible says this, the beast, which was, was, and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes on destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, and they have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Hold that, because now I want you to look in verse 19. Of Daniel chapter 7. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others. It's exceedingly dreadful, teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured. And then verse 20, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up, right? And then in verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war against the saints and overpowering them. Then in verse 24, he says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten horns will arise, and another will rise after them, and he'll be different. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints, and he will intend to make an alteration in the times and laws, but he's only going to last for so long. So, this little horn will come, and he will be unique. Now, we've covered some of this previously. You should know this by now. We're talking about none other than the one as referred to as the Antichrist. Now, you need to understand in your mind, when you hear the word anti, it doesn't mean against. What you need to understand is when the scripture uses the word antichrist, it means another Christ. One who's going to come in and pretend to be God on the face of the earth. This is the only way that he's going to be able to deceive, even the Bible says, even if possible, which it's not, even the elect. So, so what is it? And by way of review, he's a political genius. The way that he comes to power is he just maneuvers his way and pushes those other horns out of the way because of his political genius. 
He just knows how to do that. He's able to make peace and rise to the top because of his political genius. In verse 8, it says he has eyes like that of a man. That means he's incredibly intelligent. He'll be able to solve problems nobody else has been able to solve because of his intellect and how he applies it in a political matter. But he also says in verse 8 that he has this mouth to speak and boast great things. In verse 25, it says he will be against the Most High. He has an insane ability to communicate. And he's going to be able to communicate in such a way that he can blaspheme the God Most High and people will still love him. That's crazy to me. He's going to be so smooth and so convincing Verse 23 tells us that he's going to devour the whole earth and break it into pieces. This tells me he's a military genius. This tells me he knows how to get out there and conquer and to just be a military genius and just devour and break the world into pieces. He's also this commercial genius because in Revelation 18, we learn that he uses this worldwide economic system. You've heard of this before. Everybody's going to be required either on their hands or their forehead to get the mark of the beast. And that's how they'll be able to buy or sell anything. And without that, you don't do any business whatsoever. He's a genius. He'll be able, he'll be another Christ and able to convince people to even worship him. He will convince them that he is God on the earth. There's only one person that is God on the earth, and that was Jesus. That's why I'm telling you, he is coming to uh, compare himself. No, he's coming to convince people he is God. The Messiah. Verse 25 said that he changes the times and the laws. Everyone will be, every, everything and everyone will be, all that we've known religiously, morally, times of worship, religious festivals, celebrations, any kind of any way, dealing with anything around God and his book, this man would change it all. He's going to change it all. Yet verse 25 tells us that his time is limited. It says for times, times, and a half a time. In other words, if we look at that biblically, and I'm not going to take the time here because we're going to cover it later, it literally means three and a half years. For three and a half years, he's going to be like this. He's going to be like just convincing everyone that he is God in the flesh and and all this and all this power and all this victory. Nobody's going to be able to deny it. There's going to be miracles taken all over the place. Everybody's going to say, well, then just look. I mean, this is crazy. No one can deny it. But then at the end of three and a half years, guess what happens? And he breaks his treaty. And then please don't think that I'm cussing. I'm just telling you what will happen. But literally, all of hell and its demons will break loose on this earth. And there will be blood, the Bible talks about, that will be as high as horses' bridles flowing because of the mass occur that this man will bring forth on this earth. But it's only for a short time because at the end of that, then there's something crazy happens. The Bible then talks about something will happen to him. But let me just tell you, in the midst of this three and a half years, this famous premier will do something. But before that, when you see this world leader step out on the stage, you see one man, just, he just rises above them all. And everybody just starts following him. All the kingdoms of the earth just start submitting to him and just start to say, you're the one that's going to lead this. When you see that happen, know that the kingdom of Christ is near. 
That leads me, though, to the third thing, that the kingdom of Christ will come after the faith-based persecution. It's going to be a faith-based persecution. Verse 21, you heard it earlier. Verse 21 said this, that I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Revelation 13, 7 says this. It says, Revelation 13, 7 says, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to what? Yeah. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. There's that language again. The peace ends, and in the middle of this week, this covenant, he makes war on the people of God. Listen, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, I hate to hurt your feelings, but this ain't talking about you. There's going to be 144,000 Jews, but there's going to be a massacre of Jewish people. The Jewish people will be under such persecution, it is unbelievable. The Antichrist will kill literally two-thirds of all Jews. You think Hitler did it? You haven't seen what's going to happen to the people of God. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says, It'll come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. Two-thirds. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silvers are fine, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. The Lord will be faithful. He conquers the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 2 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses will be plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will be not cut off from the city. He slaughters many. You just have to understand this. Going back to Revelation 13, I'm going to read verse 7 again to give you context, and then 8 through 10. It was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And then all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. There is going to be an intense faith-based persecution. And when we see that happen, but listen, don't, don't get things out of order. The formed partnership. And then this famous premier steps on the scene. And there's peace for three and a half years. But then guess what? It gets absolutely stupid. And then for three and a half years, there is a faith-based persecution like none other. But see, you stick around with me. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to hold to this. Like, I'm not going to say this is the only belief. This is my interpretation. But I believe there's this thing called the rapture of the church. And I believe the rapture of the church is going to take place before the Antichrist sets up that first three and a half years. A lot of people believe that rapture is going to happen at the three and a half year point before the faith-based persecution. The church will be raptured out of it. And then there's some people that says God will rapture us out after it's over. And that's called a post-rapture theology. As I've taught you here before, there's biblical evidence and interpretations that can support any of those. Here's what I'm doing. I hold my interpretation loosely. I'm living and being prepared that I have to face the persecution. 
I, I, I believe in hope that God's going to rapture us out, but I'm being prepared that if he doesn't and I got my interpretation wrong, my feelings haven't got hurt. <laughs> you need to be careful when you study prophecy. So here's the thing, man. The coming of the kingdom of Christ will come after the fatal punishment. After the fatal punishment, because in verse 9 through 11, do you see that? The Bible says, verses 9 through 11, their thrones are set up and the Ancient of Days comes out. Right? We've covered this. And it says, man, the hair of his head is like pure wool. We described this last week. The throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. And then it says, the court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words with the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain. Now watch this. And its body was destroyed and given to the burning what? The burning fire. You see, whenever you see fire in the picture, it is usually a sign of judgment, especially when it's referring to God. Psalm 97.3 says these words, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Do you notice that around the throne, there were myriads upon myriads, and there, there are all these angelic hosts, and they're assisting in this judgment of God. And everyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, everyone whose name wasn't found will finally face the judgment. And the Antichrist, who's become a composite beast of all the other nations, will fatally be punished. Verse 12 says, that as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but extension of life was granted them for an appointed period of time. They get their fatal punishment as well. That's when Jesus talks about the punishment when he brings the nations before his throne and he judges the nations. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 25. But for now, look at verse 26 of Daniel chapter 7. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away. This is the Antichrist. It's going to be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, dominion, and greatness of all the other kingdoms will be given to the people of the saints. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Now, here's something that's cool. The Bible tells me in verse 28 that at this point, the revelation ended. Do you know why the revelation ended? Because that's the end of the story. When the, when the fatal punishment is given, this thing is over and the kingdom of God comes and you and I are amazingly forever will be in this kingdom with the Lord. So John has a reaction, though, that I want you to pay attention to in verse 28. John has one. It's similar to the one we read about Daniel. I want you to hear Daniel's to compare to John's. As for me, Daniel said, my thoughts were what? You finish it. They were what? Greatly alarming me. And his face, how, what happened to his face, church? Yeah. Now, let me say this to you. Because I don't want anyone to ever misunderstand me. The judgment of God is nothing that should make us smile. When God has to condemn sinners to an eternal hell that is literal fire, it should undo us as well. And I don't know how some preachers can stand in the pulpit and just yell and scream when they talk about hell like they're excited that people are going to hell. This should break our hearts. It should alarm us. Our faces should turn pale when we realize the eternal reality that some people will experience if they don't turn to Christ. 
It should break our hearts. It shouldn't make us happy. We shouldn't go out of here saying, well, praise God, I'm not going to hell. We, we should say, praise God, we're not going to hell, but not like that. In humility. God, thank you that you have spared me, and my heart is broken for any who wouldn't turn to you. You see, hell is not a laughing matter. Judgment is not a laughing matter. And I promise you, God doesn't enter into that judgment with a smile on his face. God enters into the judgment, the fatal punishment, even, listen to me, even the Antichrist. He doesn't enter into that with a big smile on his face because God is not willing that any would perish. His heart wants everyone to turn and repent to him. See, a lot of people think that, you know, when, when God kicks Satan out of heaven, it's like, ha ha, get out of here to hell with you, is what people say. And I'm just here to tell you, I don't think that's what happened with God. I think his heart was broken. Because God knows what his punishment is like. And if you've ever had to punish or discipline one of your children, I think you've heard it before. It hurts me more than it hurts you. I think it hurts God far more to punish people than we've realized. So I think this is why Daniel's face grows pale, because he realizes the, 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 the depth, the profundity of what he's saying. This means damnation for everyone who's not found in Christ. So let me ask you this question. This isn't meant to guilt you. This is really meant to maybe challenge you and to hold you accountable. But if you know this is true, and you know there's coming a time when Christ's kingdom comes, and then there's going to be punishment, who are you sharing the gospel with? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? In other words, let me ask it this way. If God were to answer your prayers this past week, how many people would have been saved? If God would have answered your prayers this week, how many people would have been discipled? Puts this in a whole different perspective. Because you see, that's what Christ left us here to do, is to tell people about his kingdom. And he said, hey, listen, y'all go, go out there and make disciples of the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I'm with you always. But then as he went up into heaven, they're like, hey, what's going on? And then the angel said, this King Jesus, whom you saw being lifted up this way, he's what? He's coming back. See, this is what troubles me, and, and I, I deal with it in my own heart because maybe one of the reasons you don't share Christ is because you're worried about people making fun of you and, and maybe that they'll persecute you or that maybe you would lose your job or, or whatever. Really, listen, can you seriously say that that is, that is something you're afraid of compared knowing that they may spend an eternity in hell? You're not willing to, to just take a little bit of persecution so that they could get out of an eternal lake of fire. What does that tell you about your heart? What does it tell you about how selfish that I am when I have that fear and let that dominate me rather than being obedient to the Spirit? It tells me that my heart's not rightly connected to my King. So I guess maybe one of the things that you could take from this is to beg the Lord to make you a soul winner. Beg the Lord 
Pray for people. I, I promise you, Carl, I am not trying to embarrass you, brother, and I'm not going to draw attention to you anymore than what I'm doing right now, but I want you to know this. I'm just telling you. You would have never entered into that water if somebody hadn't have prayed for you. You, Zoe, he would never be where he was at if you hadn't have shared the gospel, if you hadn't have lived your life for Christ in front of him. It wouldn't have happened. This is the power. If we don't share, Christ comes back. And listen, we're all happy because we're in the kingdom. Another point of just theology you can debate me about is this. Listen carefully. The Bible talks about that there's going to be no more tears in heaven, but do you know when it says that? It doesn't say that until after the judgment has already taken place. Because I promise you that in heaven we will weep over those whom our Father has to condemn. And I promise you there will be somebody who would turn around and see you in heaven and say, why didn't you tell me? I'm just telling you. So this kingdom stuff is really cool until the weight of it gets brought down. I'm telling you as a church, we have been put here to tell people about Jesus. We've been put here to share the gospel. We've got to have more gospel conversations. We've got to share the gospel of Jesus with more people. We have to do it, church, or else there will be tremendous blood on our hands. Do you not believe with all of your heart that you as a church, me as a part of this church, that we are responsible for the souls that live in the grains? Do you not believe that? So watch this. If everybody shares Christ at the rate that you share Christ, how many people will be reached? I'm not trying to guilt you. I promise you. I'm trying to tell you what Christ said we need to do with his kingdom. Because Christ wants to be honored among every tribe, every tongue, and every people. Isn't that what the book says? So lastly, very quickly, the kingdom of Christ will come as the final placement. After the foreign partnership, the famous premiere, the faith-based persecution, the fatal punishment, then Christ is going to come, and then he's going to give it to us, and it's going to be awesome because Jesus is coming. Jesus keeps his word. But he's not wanting you to focus upon the particular. He doesn't want you to try to pinpoint a date. He wants you to what? Be prepared. Because he's coming, and the Bible says he's going to come like a thief in the what? He's going to come, and he tells this parable about these virgins that 10 of them got their oil and their lamps and were ready, and, and five, five of them did, and five of them didn't, and then it's just too late because when he comes, it's too late to prepare. And so I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge this morning in 1 John 3 3. The Bible says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, what John is telling us is this. If you have your hope fixed upon Jesus and his kingdom, you will be living in a pure way. So let me ask you this question. How are you living right now? 
I mean, if Jesus were to come back right now, what does what is, what is your life look like? Are you living a pure life? Are you preparing yourself for His return? My team, if you guys would come. So let me close this message by telling you a couple of things that I think will be some practical wins for you. Number one, I want to challenge you to put people that don't know Christ on your prayer list. I beg you to pray for people who don't know Jesus. Secondly, I beg you to do this. You know, the stats are out. I just read a report Last week, it says this, man, that eight out of every ten Americans would come to church if somebody just invited them. You know what that tells me? A lot of people ain't inviting people. So would you just invite people? Listen, if you don't want to invite them to come to this church, I get it. Could you invite them to come somewhere? There's other gospel preaching churches here in the Grange, I promise you. There are not many, but there are. Invite people to church and then listen, man, God's given me this bodacious, big, hairy goal that if he doesn't do it, it won't happen. And I'm asking God to give us 300 people for Easter. We're going to be back out at the the stadium again this year for Easter. and, And I'm begging you to invite people to that Easter service now. And begin praying for them because the people that you invite, hopefully most of them wouldn't know Christ. So you can pray for God to save them. And maybe God would do that before Easter or on Easter. But I wonder, would you pray with me? And would you just begin to invite people back? And then today, man, would you just do this like I did? And I'm not trying to make more of Rachel than what it is. But I can tell you, I love that woman more than any any person on this earth. I'm just telling you, she is my all. She, she is where amazing happens for me. And I love her. And I'm telling you, when I was waiting for her to come, I was doing everything in my heart to make sure that I was ready for her. And if I'd be willing to do that for a woman that I love, I certainly got to be willing to do that for the Lord who saved me. Amen. Let's keep our eyes on the eastern sky. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father, I pray that this morning that the good news of your coming kingdom has challenged us to be about getting as many people into that kingdom as we possibly can. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would work in the hearts and minds. If there be anybody within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know Christ, that today would be the day that they give their life and their heart to Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need Jesus, I'll come come down. We'll introduce you to him. If you need to pray about anything or anyone, this altar is open. But let's sing.